Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. Today, we're examining business strategy and especially strategies that might be weak, kind of falling into a series of tactics or key performance indicators, or strategies that may appear strong from the outside, but are virtual ghosts when it comes to implementing them into operations of the business. And then in this conversation, we quickly bite off a potentially controversial topic, one of the key tenets of business strategy since this piece was published in 1979 is Michael Porter's Five Forces. And Porter's Five Forces is a framework for understanding competitive landscape and competitive positioning. It's focused on gaining leverage over your stakeholders. And I suppose uttering that phrase, gaining leverage over your stakeholders is a signal and it might sound a little bit aggressive when pulled into relief like that especially when stakeholder includes everything from employees to your actual customers. But this is an ingrained and and sometimes helpful framework. We talk about this being a philosophy that fits very well with the last four decades of business. It would be a largely successful framework to use to start your strategic thinking. And it's a dominant philosophy. Many of us carry it from our learning and experience in business and management. But just as we want to be able to identify when a strategy is really like a ghost strategy, really something that's reduced into tactics, we also want to be able to understand the underlying building blocks and underlying philosophy that a strategy rests on. So it's important to consider that this framework is being reevaluated. It's even or, or especially by Michael Porter himself and his colleagues who starting in about 2011, now write mostly on a concept called creating shared value. So some kind of change is afoot. Let's get into it. So Pip, one of the most intriguing pieces from Coburn Venture came from this great question, which is about how do you tell when a management team is really invested in their strategy, has carefully thought out their strategy, and when they maybe put on a good show or have a good slide deck, but um, it's very thinly thought through, very thinly followed internally. How do you tell the difference? Uh, I was asked this question breakfast about nine years ago. And uh, what dawned on me was that most publicly traded companies face ceaseless pressure to hit near-term numbers. Mm -hmm. And what that effectively does is little by little, that power and that entropy moves them towards being almost a set of KPIs, key performance indicators, and they forget the brilliance of who they are originally. So what they purport as strategy is really tactics masquerading as strategy. There's a great quote. So we created a little spectrum, left to right. Left was intention, purpose, uh, business business theory, strategy. That's where strategy comes from, all those things. And there's this wonderful Michael Porter quote 
competitive uh, strategy. Porter's five forces. Of pi Porter's five forces. Competitive strategy is about being different. It means deliberately choosing a different set of activities to deliver a unique mix of value. So in this breakfast, what I said is most companies are pushed towards hitting numbers and in the process, they become just like anyone else. So slow yeah. down because you mentioned the word entropy. And so you're saying a business can start out with something unique and differentiated and very, very special. And there's a force of entropy that actually has it almost, that suggests there's almost like a dragging down to focusing on one thing like growth rate. Yeah, I'd say there's two forms of entropy. The first is forget that they're a publicly traded company. Like you and I talk with a lot of clients, if you're trying to do something special that's not the culture norm, it takes a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. So many elements in the culture that are pushing you towards normal. Okay, average. You could fill your place with tons of smart people. Good but enough. Yeah. Good enough. Yeah. Okay, great. So you have that force. But then you become a publicly traded company, which indicates you've been super successful. Not everyone gets to become a publicly traded company. That's an amazing accomplishment when we think about it. And then the forces of the investors often, particularly over the last 30 years that have a single focus, which is to, to serve us through the profits and the share price, that gets to managements after a while and they wanna be able to appease or not have a bad quarter or not watch the stock go down. And all of a sudden they become sort of a caricature of themselves. They say it's strategy, but it's really tactics because they start to give up, back to Michael Porter, they start to give up that thing that sets them apart from competition, that thing that was, was really different about, about what, who they were and what they were. So we started that with that as a, a point, and my contention was one of two. One, the companies that can stay special and resist the demand of a single shareholder, stakeholder, that being the shareholders, those people may wind up be your biggest stars. Because Wall Street, the investment world, doesn't really know what it, does, what it wants. It's just kind of, it can beat people down into normalcy. So companies like Apple, companies like Netflix, Amazon, Tesla, these are all examples of companies that would never kowtow to Wall Street. So that's one thing I look for. The second that I could look for is if you're gonna be way over to the right on this spectrum and you're gonna be you know, KPIs and that's what you do, have you developed a culture that is extremely good at that? Do you have a business model that you know, can support that, that can protect and defend and all those types of things? So a company like Visa, like, oh my God, I'm not sure if they know why they're doing what they're doing, but what an incredible moneymaker at the other end of the spectrum. So this, so tactics masquerading as strategy also um, now folds into something you've called the end of Porter's five forces. Can you tell us what that means and how they relate? So if we went, I kind of look at Porter's five forces and we just quoted them previously. Porter's five forces was 1980 at Harvard. And I think he was describing the state of the world at that point in time, way before the internet, way before routing around institutions or any of this stuff. And back at that point, what he effectively, if we pulled it together and reduced it, the message was be sure to gain leverage and gain leverage over the other stakeholders in your environment. Gain, gain leverage over your suppliers, for God's sakes. Gain leverage 
over your customers. Oracle did a really good job of that. IBM did a great job of that. Even gain control over your employees at different levels. So the GE hierarchy, the old climbing the corporate ladder, Mm. fits completely with Porter's five forces because even inside the company, people are looking to leverage a lot. And that's fine when all your competition is doing that, et cetera, et cetera. But there's new models that have been unfolding over the last 20, 30 years and now are really, really going to be principal drivers of new companies going forward. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So, so meaning this- if your company is um, looking for leverage over all stakeholders, remember that employees and internal operations are a part of that as well. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like the orientation towards power is similar to an orientation about money or orientation to service or whatever. So the orientation towards power, there's that, what's that phrase? I can't remember the phrase, um, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, or what have you. Mm. The danger with power in the Porter's five forces is that you don't know how to regulate and modulate yourself and mm. everything gets exacerbated. So internally, people really start playing politics all the time. Mm-hmm. And then externally, you've figured out how to bake something into the product so they can never leave or you own the customer or you know, they, they can't escape. Um, their exit is too painful to leave IBM or Oracle, yeah. et cetera. And so what's so the that, pathway? What's the pathway from, from leverage and power and perhaps abuse of power you know, one thing you suggest is partnership. So what does that mean in this context? Yeah, I think this is really hard. This might be a place where people and some investors in Wall Street can gain a real edge because power and Wall Street and the abuse of power and the leverage of power is kind of still the language of the day. In other industries, it's not. So what, um, in 1994, I remember seeing John Chambers at Cisco, this company's just ripping it. And instead of talking about how he was trapping customers and all that, he kept talking about partnership, partnership, partnership. And I, I was at the Phoenician and we're all sitting there listening to him. And I think half the people are falling asleep. It's like, why is this guy saying this ridiculous stuff about partnership? If we fast forward, what, 25 years later, a lot of the companies that are doing super well, look at their clients as partners who Remember J.C. Hertz said, if you listen closely to your clients, they'll give you the product roadmap. Well, you don't get invited into the product roadmap if they think you're trying to screw them over all the time. Or we look at Intel and we look at Microsoft that really won in Porter's Five Forces. Microsoft had to completely change its stripe to become an open partner, finally Mm -hmm. post-Balmer. Intel is still kind of wandering in the desert because they could never gain the trust of clients to give them room into any mobile phone application. So that right. it's a real challenge. So that move of these new companies that are starting up, many of them, not all of them, many of them have the advantage that they look at the world differently and no one working there wanted to ever climb a corporate ladder for God's sake. So they've created something that they've wanted to be a partner of. And then these places are not perfect at all, but they start from an orientation of delighting the customer. That's the opposite of like gaining leverage over the customer. They want to delight the customer. They want to inspire employees, which sometimes is really super hard, but they're not looking to put employees on a corporate treadmill. The suppliers, I know Whole Foods kind of working with their suppliers of like, are you making enough money? And this type of thing. And I think that's the path that we're going and we'll continue to go going forward. This, do you, you'll gain my trust and we'll work really, really well together. If I can trust that you actually have a thought about 
my well-being and you'll state that publicly and you'll act accordingly. If it looks like it's all about you, I'm going to try and find someone else to partner with. Well, we've already seen this happen with a lot of co-creation, whether it's between, you know, in software sales with the people who use the product, um, all kinds of co-creation happening so that stakeholders are more naturally aligned anyway. I think that's a great example. We were talking with a, just a few weeks ago, Peter Esperson at Lego, where they had enough across years and years and years, they had enough partnership with their with their client that they gave them their consumers, that they gave them enough room to create more and more things. And then other partners could join in and use Lego and make money off of Lego sponsored by Lego. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of people that have been playing with these models. I think they're going to accelerate the idea of, you know, I'm a crusty, I'm going to figure out how to gain the power and then I'm going to wield it. That model's not going to go very well. So I just want to end with one thing, which is that you've said that um, Porter's, Porter's Five Forces, which is you know taught widely and, and internalized, I think there's also some really interesting nudges that you know he himself has said that this model mm. is up for you know uh, redefinition, redefinition and review. So that'll be interesting to see what the, comes uh, the, out. I'll give you a fresh quote from, from him, which is the purpose of a corporation must be redefined as creating shared value, wow. not just profit per se. This will drive the next wave of innovation and productivity growth in the global economy. So he's even looking at this, not he's even looking at it, he's like super smart and adaptable in his thinking. Mm -hmm. He's seeing where this is going as well. So it's normal that what we view as great competitive business strategy would be changing. When I was researching for this podcast, I found myself on the homepage for Harvard Business School's Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness. And there was a page highlighting the shared value concept. And it had this sort of manifesto underneath it that I would not have expected to find on this website. So here's a paraphrase. Capitalism is suffering from a crisis of trust. It is time to restore public trust through a redefined vision of capitalism with the full potential to meet social needs. So it's really a self-centered or business-centered statement, but you can see how very different it is. So much to think about. Thanks for listening.